WGBB Sports Talk Flashback. Right, joining us now is Long Island native and 14-year NFL pro that played three years at quarterback for the New York Jets. Boomer Esiason joins me right now. Boomer, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Boomer, everyone's used to hearing you give your analysis on the games, and I certainly want to get your thoughts on uh, on the Jets in just a bit. But first, I'd actually like to learn a little bit about you, and I'd like to start off by taking you back to your days growing up on Long Island. You grew up in East Islip. Are there any memories that stand out from playing Maybe not only football, but any sports back then, maybe a teammate or a coach that had an influence on you? Well, there's no question that my high school baseball and football coach, who was the same man, Sal Champy, had a profound effect on me, as well as the other players that uh, played for him. And he created a tradition and a history at East Islip High School that to this day still stands, as his son is now the head coach of the football team. But it was all about, you know, bringing uh, ethics and toughness and responsibility, dedication, uh, he would be very demanding of us, not only on the sports field, but also wanted to see our attendance records, wanted to make sure that we were going to class. He wanted to see all of our uh, report cards. As a matter of fact, when you became, I believe it was a sophomore in high school, he was your homeroom teacher, so you could not be <laughs> in school. So all of those things uh, I think that he taught me, and most of us felt like he was our second father. And most, you know, all of our fathers, uh, you know, loved Sal, loved the, the lessons he was teaching us. Uh, and that's why I'm still very close to not only him but also the school because it gave me the foundation to go on and, and succeed. And I often tell players uh, to this day um, that if you're lucky enough to play in that kind of system, you should never forget where you came from and always give back. That's very true. Now, as a quarterback playing in high school, is that something that you always intended on being or coming out of high school, going into college, you, you played other sports? I mean, was quarterback the thing that you knew kind of early on that that was what you wanted to do? Yeah, I actually took on the role of a quarterback at the age of 10 in Little League football. So I kind of knew that the position was uh, the position that I wanted to play, at least in football. But I was a much better baseball player than I was a football player when I was younger, and that goes through for high school as well. And it's kind of a unique story in how I ended up at the University of Maryland. It was the only school that offered me a scholarship, and that scholarship basically was based on the fact that the University of Maryland football coaches who were recruiting a player from West Islip High School uh, went to this player's basketball game to try to get him to commit to a trip to the University of Maryland. This was uh, right after our senior football season, and uh, we at East Islip were playing West Islip in a high school basketball game. And after that game, my basketball coach, who was not Sal Champion, my football or baseball coach, came to me and said the University of Maryland coaches wanted to talk to me, and I didn't even know that they were at the game, and let alone – I didn't even know they were football coaches. I thought they were basketball coaches. I thought maybe they wanted to talk to me about going to play basketball in Maryland. That's how out of it I was. And they said, you know, we didn't realize the type of athlete you were because you never really ran with the football when you were in high school. And we see that you stayed up with the kid that we're recruiting. Would you be interested in taking a visit to the University of Maryland? And now this obviously comes after a great deal of uh, prodding by my high school football coach to get um, major colleges to look at me as a football player. But it wasn't until these guys told me on the basketball court that they knew I had the athleticism to play. So, lo and behold, I took a visit to the University of Maryland about two weeks later. They offered me a scholarship on the last day that I was there. I came back. I told my father that I got uh, a University of Maryland football scholarship. I thought he was going to faint. <laughs> and basically, that's how it all started for me. I, I, I thought I was going to be able to play baseball in college, but I was not. 
Uh, they forced me to play spring football, which in turn really turned out to be the best thing for me. So yeah, I think uh, you never know. Out. you got to have a little luck. you got to be at the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's curious because I was curious as to how you chose Maryland. So you go on to have a great career at Maryland, end up being drafted by the Bengals in the second round in uh, 1984. You take over for a longtime quarterback there, Kenny Anderson. You go on to have a great 14-year career in the NFL, four Pro Bowls, MVP in 1988. Uh, you led the Bengals to the Super Bowl and that same year, Super Bowl 23 against the Niners. Did you ever expect to have the kind of career that you ended up having in the NFL? Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, when I first got to the Cincinnati Bengals in 1984, I was uh, I was pretty angry. I was angry because I, I didn't get drafted until the second round. I thought I was going to be a first-round draft choice. It cost me a few million dollars, if you know the difference between first and second-round draft choices back then was about that much money. So I was angry, and I, I was very confident that I was going to have a very good and long and prosperous NFL career. Unfortunately for me, you know, it was with three organizations that, number one, uh, with Cincinnati, was a team that did not spend a lot of money on trying to build a winner. It was basically a team that counted every penny and was a family-owned team and didn't have any outside money coming in. So uh, we we had a good six-year run there, and we were one of the better teams offensively in the NFL, and it was great memories. But uh, when it came time for free agency in the NFL, the Bengals basically sat on the sidelines and did nothing. Fortunately enough for me, I was lucky enough to be traded to uh, the, the New York Jets, my hometown team, if you will, and I played for Bruce Coslett, who was my offensive coordinator in, in Cincinnati, Cincinnati when right. we did go to the Super Bowl, and we won 8-8. Eight and eight. We were in pretty much every game with the exception of the last game, which if we would have won would have put us into the playoffs. They fired Bruce because we did not make the playoffs and hired Pete Carroll. Uh, in the midst of all of this, Dick Steinberg, the general manager for the New York Jets, became very ill with cancer. And it basically was a rudderless ship. We failed at the end of the season with Bruce, with uh, Pete Carroll, and then they hired Richie Kotite, and, and and it was a full uh, chaotic. It was a tough time for the Jets, yeah, at that time. Yeah, which was unfortunate for me, but uh, you know, fortunately, I, I still had enough left in me to go play for, of all teams, the Cardinals, another team that was a penny-pinching team. But at the end of the day, I don't regret any of the decisions I made. I don't regret any of the teams that I played for and realized that uh, I did have a great and very prosperous NFL career that ultimately turned out to be a tremendous uh, broadcasting career after that. Do you think the quarterback position has changed any since the time you came into the NFL compared to now? Well, the game has changed. Um, <clears throat> I think that the the, the, real, the relaxing of the rules uh, in terms of, or not that I should say the tightening of the rules, in terms of uh, the defenses and what they could do to wide receivers and pass catchers as they past five yards down the field has really opened up the game. And it's interestingly enough, I talked to a lot of the guys that I played with, you know, Phil Sims and Dan Marino, Jim Kelly, John Elway. I think all of us probably would have thrown for 50,000 yards <laughs> if we played under the present rules. But the one thing I do know is the game is much faster now than it is when I played. Now the players are bigger, they're faster, they're stronger. All the quarterbacks now are pretty much the size that, you know, we were when we played. So that hasn't changed much, but, I think they're much better prepared to play in the pro game coming out of the college game now nowadays than we ever were. So, uh, you know, it's the evolution of the game, and, I, and I'm still proud to be associated with it as a broadcaster. I certainly would not want to coach. It's just, I think it's just a mind-numbing experience. So yeah. I'm, I'm pretty lucky with what I'm doing now. Yeah, and actually, so you went into broadcasting. Now, you've had a pretty successful career at that. Is that something that you always wanted to do, or maybe you knew you wanted to do towards the end of your career? Well, there's no question about it. I was a radio, television, and film a uh, guy at the University of Maryland. I graduated with a general studies degree with an emphasis in radio, television, and film and did all of my 
you know, my internships when I was in college, like most kids in college today do, and, and got, you know, my feet firmly planted on the ground, understanding what I think was uh, required in order to be a, a pretty good broadcaster. And the thing that I, that I really did and parlayed and leveraged was the fact that, you know, I, I was a good interview and made a lot of, uh, I made a lot of contacts and used those contacts to really support my future. And that's exactly what's happened for me. Um, do, do you miss playing? I mean, how does broadcast compare to playing? Well, you know what? When you're 45 years old, <laughs> you realize you can't play anymore, <laughs> so, especially at the level that they, that they're playing. Now I have a hell of a time trying to play touch football with my son and his friends, <laughs> let alone going out there and getting beat around. But I do miss Sundays. There's, there's no question that. There's something really exciting about a Sunday afternoon. It's the uncertainty. It's the stress. It's the anticipation. It's the fulfillment when you win. It's the disappointment when you lose. All that kind of adds up to something that's very special and that can never be recreated. So from the standpoint of missing all of those aspects of of football, yeah, I do miss it, but I don't miss the – you know, the, the sacrifice that it takes to become a great football player. Well, as an analyst, I, saw, I want to get your, your thoughts on the Jets game yesterday, but before we get into the particulars of yesterday's game, how surprised are you at the season the Jets were able to put together this year? Well, it was a tremendous season by Eric Mangini, and, and more than him, I think it's a tremendous season by Chad Pennington. He was great this year. Not, not one Jet fan that I know, and I live here on Long Island, thought that he was going to be their quarterback, let alone wanted him to be their quarterback. Uh, nobody thought that he was going to make it through a 16-game season. Everybody thought that his arm was too weak already. How how much, you know, was he going to lose off an already weak arm? I mean, so many questions surrounding him and whether or not he was going to be able to play. And in large part, the Jets felt that way, too. That's why they went out and signed Patrick Ramsey. That's why they drafted sure. Kellen Clemens in the second round. So they didn't even know what they were going to get from him. Yes. So his season was, I think, topped off with the Comeback Player of the Year award that he won from right. the AP ballots. It's a tremendous year. Eric Mangini did things that nobody expected. As a matter of fact, he was another one that when he was hired, uh, he, he came, a lot, came along with a lot of criticism. Who is this guy? Can he handle it? Does he know what he's doing? Uh, and it's clear to me that he obviously learned from Bill Belichick because he instituted a lot of his principles, and it took them all the way to the playoffs. Now, it helped that they had one of the weaker schedules in football, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you still have to line up and play in the NFL, and winning a football game, no matter who you play against the NFL, is not an easy task. Um, all right, so, I mean, yesterday you picked the Pats on the NFL today to win by at least a touchdown, so you're, you're on the money with that. The game was probably a little bit closer than the final score indicated, but um, how did you think the, uh, what did you think of the Jets' performance yesterday? Was it about what you expected would happen? Yeah, I thought it, it's exactly what I expected would happen. You know, they, they, they were good. They didn't do anything to embarrass themselves. And, you know, this time Bill Belichick and Tom Brady were, were ready for them on an offensive standpoint. You know, the last time they played, uh, the Jets got off some great blitzes. They were not prepared to block those blitzes. The offensive linemen, running backs, and tight ends in response to who was supposed to block who the last time they played really made a lot of mistakes. But uh, this time around, everybody was sure as to who they were supposed to block. Tom Brady knew who the free blitzer was. He knew when to throw it. They went after Andre Dyson early in this game because, you know, he was coming off of a knee injury. Right. So they exposed that particular weakness in the Jet defense. But at the end of the day, you know, the Patriots are a team that is loaded. they got great defensive linemen. They have, tremendous, they have a tremendous quarterback. They have a very good offensive line, a great running game and pretty good special teams, you know, and they played in their building on a new surface, a faster surface. It wasn't as muddy as it was back in November. So it's not surprising to any of us that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick figured out how to handle 
Eric Mangini's blitzes. Yeah, they looked a lot less confused than they did the last time they played. Whatever adjustments they made, they seemed much more comfortable in the game yesterday. You could tell that right from the opening drive. Well, what I tell people all the time is, in the NFL, for young quarterbacks, it's all about identifying who is blitzing, who is blocking who, who is responsible for the blitzer. If there isn't anybody responsible to block him, then it's the quarterback's responsibility to get rid of it. And it's the hardest thing for young quarterbacks to really master is to understand where those players are coming from. And yesterday, what you saw was a vintage, playoff-hardened, experienced football team. Uh, The New England Patriots handle all those things. But like I said, the Jets were well into this game into the fourth quarter. It kind of got away from them the last couple drives. But other than that, I think they represented themselves very well. How far away do you think they are from getting to the next level? I mean, they probably need an every down back. Um, I mean, what, what is it you think the Jets need most to, to upgrade to maybe take a next uh, another step forward? Well, you know, if you ask me, their defense actually played pretty good down the stretch. I mean, they only gave up uh, 14, or more, uh, 14 or less points in seven of their last eight games, not counting the Patriot game. So I still think their defense needs to, you know, probably get another pass rusher, uh, another set of defensive linemen to help spell the ones that are there, the, the, the front the front level guys now. Uh, they probably need a, a playmaking cornerback without question. Uh, you're, you're right on in an assessment, and every down big-time back would really help them. Their offensive line is going to be so much better next year because DeBrickishaw Ferguson and Nick Mangle have a year under their belt. Now. And they, so, they were, as rookies, they were pretty impressive, wouldn't you say? They, they were. As a matter of fact, some people were thinking about voting Nick Mangle Rookie of the Year. It's unprecedented when an offensive lineman gets something like that. But, uh, he, you know, it's the kind of year he had. That's the toughest position on the offensive line in your first year is center because you have to identify where the blitzers are coming from. you got to tell the other offensive lineman who's responsible for who and, and do it within about a five-second spot and then snap the ball, and sure. they spend a lot of time in shotgun, so you got to be able to do that as well. So I, I would tell you that they're, they're going to be very good on offense, I think, next year. Um, I'd like to see maybe another playmaking wide receiver, believe it or not, and, and, and a threat at tight end. You know, tight end has got to be – you know, somebody like uh, Antonio Tony. Gates or Tony Gonzalez. If you say, could yeah. ever find a guy like that, that certainly would help Chad Pennington and continue their development on offense. And I love Brian Schottenheimer, their offensive coordinator. Well, I don't think we'll get an interview for any head coaching spot this year, but I think next year or the year after, he will be a prime candidate that will be pried away from the New York Jets if they continue having success. Right. I know you had actually mentioned that on your show. And, uh, uh, Tony Gonzalez, I think, becomes a free agent this year, too, so maybe they just have a shot at getting him uh, to upgrade their position. Well, the, the other good thing about the Jets is that they have the, the best salary cap situation, I believe, of any team in the NFL. There will be about $28 million, I believe, as, I, as has been reported, underneath the salary cap. Now, if that's the case, uh, they can be very aggressive in free agency. You know, They're probably going to look for those mid-round, mid-range guys. I don't know if they'll go after Gonzalez, but... At the end of the day, you know, Mike Tannenbaum, the general manager, does not get a lot of credit for this, but this is one of the big things in the NFL these days, having the salary cap flexibility to go out and find the players that you desperately need to shore up your team in the short term while always keeping an eye on the future and making sure that you don't hamstring yourself uh, with overspending for overaged uh, veterans. Right. Well, just to quickly touch on the Giants, I think fans basically have two questions, and they would be, can, can Eli Manning be the quarterback that everyone expects him to be, and, and do you think Tom Coughlin's going to be back next year? Well, in regards to Eli Manning, I thought yesterday we saw the best and the worst of Eli. There were times uh, where he looked like he had no idea what he was doing and that he was overwhelmed. 
you know, that kind of that sleepy feeling that he gets and, and I think Giant fans have for him when they watch him. But then there was a the great drive where he had to overcome numerous penalties to his offensive linemen, make first downs, found Plaxico Burris on a couple big plays and ultimately a touchdown pass that tied the game in the heat of the game in the heat of the fourth quarter. So there's obviously something there. We all see it. We all know it. Um, I, I think the big question for the Giants right now is what to do with Tom Coughlin. And I, I certainly don't think that his message is resonating in the in the locker room anymore. I think it's falling on deaf ears. He's an old-school coach, old-school principles, which is fine. But in today's day and age with these athletes, you've got to find somebody who can get more out of them. Um, the, the penalties, the injuries, all the things that he talked about when he took over the Giants three years ago have really come back to haunt him now. And this team looks at times undisciplined, uh, and I think they need to get a more offensive-minded coach in here to make sure the most important player in the NFL, uh, on their team anyway, uh, gets uh, off to a good start next year, and that's Eli Manning. So look for them to go offensive, I think, because I don't think Tom Coughlin will be here. Yeah, it's ironic that discipline turned out to be maybe his undoing, and that's the whole reason they brought him here in the first place, too. It is, but, you know, in today's day and age, when you're dealing with uh, young athletes, you have to have a, mes- a message that resonates with them, that gets the most out of them. And sometimes old-school coaches, you know, Bill Parcells might be one of those guys. That You know, the, the game has passed them by. It's that the player has passed them by. You know, back in the day in the 80s and the 70s, players, you know, without guaranteed contracts or big signing bonuses were very easy to manipulate and control. And you can tell them to do things, and they would do it uh, with great respect and admiration for what the head coach meant. Today's, you know, streetball kid comes in, gets a $10 million signing bonuses, he's got all the answers, wants to talk to the press every turn that he gets, and he really cuts into the fabric of what the coach is trying to teach. So wherever the Giants go, it's going to have to be with a guy that un- understands and resonates with the younger player in today's game. Because I, I really don't think that Tom Coughlin does that right now. All right, let's shift gears just for a minute. I just want to talk a little bit about the, the Boomer Sison Foundation. Um, as many know, your son Garner was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis back in 1993, and since then you and your wife Cheryl have been committed to, to raising awareness about the disease. Uh, matter of fact, you won the Walter Payton Man of the Year Award back in 95 for your charitable work. Um, but since you've established the foundation, you've been successful in raising not only awareness but money for the research needed to help discover a cure for the disease. 2006, this past year, was a big year for the foundation. Not only did you guys raise uh, millions of dollars, but the foundation also expanded its reach as well. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, well, the number of things that we've done this year, um, first and foremost, after Hurricane Katrina of last year, we were able to adopt a number of uh, cystic fibrosis families in that region of the country. And, you know, we helped them secure housing. We made sure that they had their medicine. We made sure that they could get uh, cars to get around places. You know, we kind of skipped the whole Red Cross deal, and we tried to make sure that we could help the people within our community. And I did that. Uh, by asking our board members to, yet again, donate even more money outside of our main mission to help these families, and we did that, and I feel very, very good about that. We've had a scholarship program uh, at Hofstra over the last 10 years. It's a Gunnar Esiason endowed scholarship over there. Every year a student receives uh, full financial aid. We feel very good about that. Last year we gave almost $250,000 out in full scholarships 
to a number of cystic fibrosis patients all around the country. We uh, enacted that particular program again with a very uh, nice uh, donation from Novartis as a uh, pharmaceutical concern that does have cystic fibrosis drugs, so they're giving back to their right. people. And then also <clears throat> we're in the process of developing a, an adult cystic fibrosis and lung center at uh, Columbia Presbyterian Children's Hospital, and we feel very good about that as well. And the good news there is is that a lot of our patients are now growing older. And uh, I don't necessarily know that everybody was ready for this, but because of the success that the families have had prior to our involvement. New challenges now. uh, That's right. My son, Gunnar, has really benefited from all the money that had been raised prior to us even getting involved. And now he's benefiting from a lot of new drugs that deal with the main symptom of the disease, and that's the bacterial infections that hit the lungs because the lungs don't filter themselves properly. That's where the genetic defect lies. So uh, while we're still years away from a cure, whether it be through stem cell research or, uh, you know, through genetics, uh, whatever it might be, we're still years away, but we're still fighting, and we're still fighting to find that cure and also more drugs to help us fight the symptoms. Gunner's 15 right now. He's a football player. He's a hockey player. Uh, he plays golf. He plays lacrosse. And the only thing that I could tell you is 25 years ago that night might not have been the case, but now our kids are living longer, healthier lives and due in large part to the amount of money that we've been able to raise. Well, you guys are doing great work. I mean, some of the, some of the foundation's upcoming events in our area uh, include the booming celebration March, uh, March 10th at the Waldorf Astoria, and what will be a 14th annual golf invitational taking place in May of this year on the 7th at the Glen Oaks Club in Old Westbury. Can you tell us a little bit just about those two events? Well, those two our events are our signature events. Our booming celebration will will raise over $3 million this year. This is the normal black tie dinner where you honor somebody who's been very supportive in your fight against cystic fibrosis, and we're doing that again this year. This is our 14th annual dinner, and this dinner is really our signature event. We bring over 750 people together at the Waldorf Astoria. We'll raise, like I said, over $3 million, and we bring together cystic fibrosis patients, families, parents, uh, past award winners. Uh, you know, it's a really a reunion of type of sorts that really has been uh, fantastic for us. And then our golf tournament is at Glen Oaks, as you said, over in Old Westbury, uh, that place uh, has been terrific to us. That event raises almost $900,000. So wow. it, we don't do this without great board members. We can't do it without sponsorships. We can't do it without a lot of people giving to us, uh, you know, goods free of service, uh, that type of stuff. And we have a, a real large army. That's one of the reasons we've been able to raise over $50 million. It's one of the reasons that we are uh, a four-star charity, navigated Raider char- rated charity. Uh, we do 94% of every dollar goes right to the cause. We have valuable uh, sponsorships and partners. And then, of course, I have my all-star game in June, and that's New York City versus Long Island at Hofstra. Uh, we usually get about 10,000 people at Hofstra in late June. We put the, the game on MSG. They do it. NFL Network will have it on their network again this year. So it's been a, it's been somewhat trying at times and frustrating. That's what fundraising is. But when those events are all over, said, and done with, boy, I'll tell you what, you feel fulfilled and you feel very thankful that you have a lot of great people in your life. Yeah, I mean, it's an aggressive schedule, and you guys are doing great work with the foundation. Now, if someone wants to learn more about cystic fibrosis or maybe help contribute their time or money, um, everything can be found at uh, your website? That's exactly right, asiason.org. All of our uh, events are on there. You can go there as well. So. Uh, we're very open with everything. We we try to tell people exactly what we're doing. We don't like to pat ourselves on the back, but we uh, we can use as much help as we possibly can get. We never turn anybody down, and uh, we look for you know anybody who can possibly help us. The other thing that we've done here too locally 
is we've uh, partnered up with Commerce Bank and and their senior golf tournament um, in in, uh, in the summer as well. And a lot of that money that we raised there, we matched it as a foundation. The money that Commerce gave us, and we we put it right to Long Island Children's uh, Schneider's Children's Hospital Cystic Fibrosis Center. So we're we're very active locally as well as nationally, and and we're very thankful, like I said, uh, for all the support that we do receive. Well, Boomer, thanks so much for, for speaking with me today. I know you have a very busy schedule, particularly this time of year, so I'd really like to thank you for, for giving us a few minutes of your time. Uh, before I let you go, i got to ask you one last football question, and uh, that is who's going to win it all this year? Who's your pick yeah, for the Super Bowl? Well, I have to pick the Patriots <laughs> at the beginning of the year, and I'm not ready to jump off it uh, off that bandwagon just yet, although I know they're going to have a very difficult game this week against San Diego. The interesting thing will be to see how Philip Rivers, who will be in his first playoff game, handles the Bill Belichick defensive pressure. So that's where the rub in this game is. And in my eyes, I think New England's a team to beat still. All right, Boomer. Thanks a lot. Take care. And, of course, uh, you'd be welcome to come back on our show anytime. All right, Rob. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Yeah.